It was mid-spring. The year was 239 Northtide. The skies were clear above the Rhine, and Ludbrook the Bear, King of Muringard, had made up his mind. He would lead his men on a campaign across the sea, ending the tenuous peace between Muringard and the Shelty tribes to the north. In the king's eyes, there would be no better time to strike. The raids that year had been sparse, hinting at a lack of manpower. The winter storms had lasted late into spring, promising a relatively peaceful autumn. Most importantly, at least for the king, his druids had cast auguries and promised Ludbrook that his campaign would be swift and victorious. If he wanted to establish a foothold in the north, it was now or never. At least, that's what Ludbrook believed. Although he was a fearsome warrior and an administrator of moderate competence, he was a superstitious man who placed a great deal of weight on prophecies and omens. Looking at his reign in hindsight, it's apparent that the druids of his court took advantage of that misplaced faith in every way they could, plying him with self-fulfilling prophecies and growing wealthy off of his patronage. Nevertheless, Ludbrook was convinced, and none of his counselors could sway him. He called upon his vassals to provide men for the campaign and assembled a fleet. The longship set out from Veldast with banners flying high, expecting to make landfall within a week and end the campaign before the autumn storms arrived. As the furor died down, the inhabitants of Veldast quickly returned to their normal lives. Raising an army quickly drained the city's resources, and everyone was in a hurry to restore some semblance of normalcy now that the soldiers had departed. You can imagine their surprise, then, when the first ship returned less than two weeks later. It limped up the sluggish river, rowed by a skeleton crew, until it reached the safety of Lake Eyre. The historian, Evard de Gallia, captured the reactions of eyewitnesses in his chronicles. According to those who had seen the ship, it was barely seaworthy. Its mast was cracked, and it listed heavily to one side. The crew looked half dead. Some of them slowly rode their way to the docks, while others simply sat motionless, staring into the distance as if they were watching a gruesome spectacle that only they could see. Two days later, the next ships made their way back most in significantly better shape than the first ship. It seemed that some had fared better than others. Gradually, a more complete picture of what had happened was pieced together. The first two days at sea had been smooth sailing. A brisk wind backed their journey northwest as they circled around the isle. It was only after they began cutting across the Rhine towards Shelty lands that the storm hit. It was more of a hurricane than a storm. It swept across the ocean, dividing the fleet in half and sowing chaos amongst the army's ranks. The stragglers were mostly spared, being able to reverse course and flee the oncoming tempest. A few ships in the vanguard made landfall before it arrived, stranding them in Shialti lands. The rest of the fleet took on the brunt of the onslaught. Pummeled relentlessly by howling winds and stinging hail, they were driven off course towards the mainland. Some were dashed against the rocky shoreline and destroyed, but the rest managed to weather the storm's fury and began limping homeward. Ludbrook the Bear went down with his ship, leaving his kingdom to his infant son with his wife, now the Queen Dowager, acting as regent and ruling in his son's stead. His druids, for their part, 
moved quickly to distance themselves from the debacle. Their success was highly limited. The fallout within the royal court was almost as brutal as the hurricane had been for the fleet, as the Queen Dowager began wielding her royal authority to punish the leeches that had grown fat on her husband's trust. By the time her vassals managed to rein her in, fully half of the druids had been beheaded, a bloodbath of the clergy that was practically unheard of throughout Miringard's history. It must have been a series of shocks to those druids, to have misjudged both nature and humanity to such a degree. While their divinations were clearly fraudulent, reason had told them that the seas would cooperate with their lieges' plans. The rhyme, however, is unpredictable, and Ludbrook is far from the only man to have been lost to it. Welcome to a world very much like our own, but with a crucial difference. In this world, folklore is rooted in stark reality. My name is John Kernett, and I'll be guiding you through stories of strange events, close encounters, political conflicts, and tragic history, all set in a unique world that blends reality and mythology. This is the Wayfarer's Compendium. When kings such as Ludbrook assemble a fleet, not all of the ships come from their vassals. Some are commanded by independent captains. Depending on the captain in question, they might be contracted to transport soldiers and supplies or hired as mercenaries to fight alongside the army. Much like their knightly counterparts on land, the origin of the word freelance, actually, these free captains worked and fought for the highest bidder. Stigander was one such captain. His ship was called the Haldora. It was a highly seaworthy vessel, and his crew were veterans of the Rhine. For nearly 30 years, he plied the seas as a free captain, working for merchants and armies to transport goods and soldiers alike. Stigander would frequently engage in less savory ventures, such as smuggling, but he never stooped so low as piracy. For all his rough edges, he was a decent man, true to his word and generally respected by his crew as a fair leader. He might skirt around the law when there was coin to be made, but he prided himself on never profiting off of another man's loss. If you had asked him what he thought he would do for the rest of his life, he likely would have said the same thing he had been doing up until now, sailing. That changed after the storm. He had set out from Rodstad with a hold full of otter pelts. Rodstad was a shelty port, located in the fjords of the mainland to the north of Veldrum. In the city of Erinal, far to the south, the pelts would fetch an excellent price. With the winds at his back, the journey from Rodstad to Erinal would be no more than a week long, and he would be a significantly richer man for it. Four weeks later, the Haldor limped into port. Captain Stigander never made it to Erinal. He instead found himself at the town of Bayer Ulv, 300 miles north of his intended destination. 
When they arrived at the docks, the Haldora was manned by a skeleton crew. Only a third of the men who set out on the journey had come back. The remaining sailors were in various states of delirium. One man claimed to have seen the devil, while another claimed to have been living in luxury the entire time their ship was lost at sea. One said there was ice all around them, while another claimed that the air was hot and dry. They all agreed on one thing, though, that they had been overtaken by a terrible storm, and that, when the rain and lightning had subsided, they were somewhere else. Stigander, for his part, said nothing. He had a scrap of cloth tied around his head in a makeshift bandage. According to the man himself, he had been thrown from his feet during the storm and slammed his head on the wooden deck, knocking him unconscious. When he came to, his hearing was gone. That was all he would say about the journey. Each member of the crew maintained that their version of the story was correct as they drank their way through the waterfront public houses. The day turned to night. Bystanders later said that the atmosphere was somber, far from the carousing and drinking that you would expect from sailors having just made landfall after an unexpectedly dangerous journey. They drank excessively and grimly. It was at this point that the deaths began. At first it seemed like an accident. A member of Stagander's crew left the tavern he was in and walked out to the nearby pier. He was found bobbing in the water the next morning, lifeless. He had fallen in and drowned. The next day it happened again. Another sailor was still drinking and hadn't slept. He refused to speak to anyone as he stumbled down to the water's edge and began swimming out to sea, eventually disappearing under the waves. His body was never found. That night, a third sailor took his own life. He had been sitting on the deck of the Haldora all day, staring blankly into the distance and occasionally laughing. As the sun set, he slit his own throat. Over the course of the week, the remainder of the crew either went missing or left town. It wasn't long before only Stagander was left. The captain had sold the Otterpelts and used his accumulated profits to retire from sailing and settle down in Byerolf. He wasn't the same after the storm. He didn't go mad as the crew did, but he became grim and withdrawn, speaking less and less until he eventually stopped talking entirely. He never regained his hearing, although that rarely affected him day to day. That may have been helped by the fact that he didn't do very much of anything day to day. His routine, according to one of his neighbors, was to sit outside of the small house he had purchased near the docks and stare out into the water. He almost never spoke and rarely entertained visitors. That same neighbor claimed she had only seen him hold an entire conversation once in the entire time he lived next to her. It was a well-to-do man in expensive clothes, a nobleman from some distant city. They sat together for a long time, scrawling notes back and forth on a piece of parchment, occasionally speaking in short phrases. What they discussed was a mystery. Even if Stigander's neighbor was close enough to see the parchment, she didn't know how to read. He kept the Haldora. It remained moored in an isolated dock near his house, far from the relative hustle and bustle of the main piers. The years of inactivity were not kind to it. Gradually, the wood began to rot and the ropes began to fray, 
but it was a solidly built ship, and it remained afloat. It became a bit of a fixture in that part of town. Children made up stories about the ghost ship and its dour, mute captain. It was autumn, eight years after Stigander had arrived in Byrol. The storm was great and terrible, by far the worst the town had seen within living memory. The town collectively tied down anything that could be swept away, shuttered its windows, and settled in to wait out the storm. No fishermen or merchant ships dared venture out into the turbulent waters of the Rhyme, for obvious reasons. Sailing out into weather like this was a death sentence. By the following day, the storm had mostly spent itself. The downpour continued through the week, but the winds had died down and the sea had calmed itself. The damage was extensive. Buildings were waterlogged and streets were flooded. Some of the slurry trickled back into the harbor as the tide lowered, but large swaths of the town were still swamped in the days following. Residents took stock of their damaged property and checked on their friends and loved ones, while sailors inspected and repaired their ships. It was understandable that it took another full day to notice that the Haldora was missing, as was its captain. Once the cat was out of the bag, the gossip spread quickly. Stigander's neighbor had seen him sitting in his usual position as the storm approached, staring grimly across the Rhine at the oncoming tempest. He remained there as the winds howled and the rain began pouring down. Right before his neighbor shuttered her windows, she saw him stand and begin resolutely walking, not towards his house, but towards the water's edge and towards the Haldora. Captain Stagander was never seen again. Tornall of Scoreshide was many things. Born into a modestly well-off and otherwise unnotable family of minor nobility in the city of, as you might have guessed, Scoreshide, he successfully tried his hand at a number of trades. At various times, he was a merchant, a scholar, and even an apprentice under the court druids at Veldast. Not the same druids who were beheaded by Ludbrook's widow, of course. They preceded Tornall by at least a century and a half. After many careers, however, Tornall's wanderlust led him to a more lasting pursuit. Cartography. It was perfect. An excuse to travel the world, mapping its lands, cataloging its realms, and indulging in its vices. He developed a towering reputation built on two pillars. The renowned accuracy of his maps, and his tendency to include outlandish claims that his contemporaries viewed as little better than outright lies. He was a bit of a paradox in that regard. Anything put down on parchment by his quill could be taken as fact, more or less, but anything out of his mouth was to be taken with a hefty pinch of salt. According to the man himself, it was a matter of professionality. Despite the fact that he continued to dabble in other fields throughout the remainder of his life, he considered himself first and foremost a cartographer. Frequently, his expeditions were motivated by a desire to unearth legends, the tombs of heroes, the sites of ancient battles, and mythical lands known only from stories. More often than not, those voyages proved fruitless, well, at least for their intended purposes. Where he failed to locate the fabled lost city of Deragaz, he instead charted the rocky, windswept coast of the Sunstrand far to the south. Pursuing the scepter of the last Nakan emperor, 
he instead discovered a new trade route to Tsoval across the Telbin River. And while searching for the burial location of Veld, the legendary founder of Miringard's capital, he instead discovered something much more dangerous. According to oral tradition, Veld had sailed north on a ship made of oak, trimmed with gold and propelled by a sail of red silk. Unlikely, given that silk was introduced to the Isle of Veldrun some 1500 years after Veld supposedly lived. Regardless of its veracity, that's how the story went. He sailed across the Rhyme to a wondrous paradise, a pristine sun-soaked island where sirens sang and rain never fell. And Tornal was set on finding it. You might be skeptical of that legend. Understandable, given the Rhyme as we know it. The sea to the north of Veldrun is cold and tempestuous. The few islands that stretch into the ocean past Veldrun, no more than dots of land speckled amidst the frigid waters, were no paradises. Rain and hail were a fact of life at nearly all times of the year, nothing like the tropical weather in the tale of Veld. On the other hand, there were certainly tall tales of sirens from time to time. It's only to be expected, sailors being as they are. The point is, the sea was dangerous, and few had traveled north of the Rhyme and come back. Tornal may have been convinced that the island was out there, but common sense dictated that it was a pointless, dangerous venture. His crew were under no illusions about that. Spirits were remarkably low as they set out from port, with one notable exception. Tornal was in a rare mood. In addition to their regular supplies, he brought a small barrel with him. When asked what was in it, he merely smiled and said it would help them find Veld's supposed resting place, refusing to elaborate further. The time was right for sailing the Rhyme, at least. It was mid-spring, and they had far better luck than Ludbrook had over a century prior. The skies were clear as the days rolled by, though the air became colder and colder as they went. It wasn't long before the water began to freeze. At first, it came in small patches, bobbing past them as they sailed. Gradually, the chunks of ice became larger and larger as the crew's spirits sank lower and lower. Tornal knew when it was time to cut his losses, and eventually gave the order to turn back. The wind had faded considerably, and they would need to man the oars to begin the voyage home. The ship ponderously navigated around the floating ice as it circled to face south and the crew began rowing against the stagnant air. Their troubles began when a sailor spotted a fish. That might sound innocuous, if not downright unremarkable. What was notable about this fish, though, was its size. The sailor claimed it was huge, as large as Tornal's longship, if not larger. The rest of the crew believed it may have been a whale, which was nowhere near as reassuring as you might be led to believe. The typically gentle temperament of whales might be common knowledge now, but few uneducated seafarers knew that at the time of Tornal's northern expedition. The mood was tense as the crew rode briskly south. After what must have felt like an eternity, their fears had faded somewhat. There had been no other sightings and nothing had surfaced. A faint breeze began to pick up, stirring the woolen sail and starting to gently propel the ship forward. That shift broke the tension, and the crew's relief was palpable as it became apparent that their time in the doldrums was over. Spirits lifted, and the crew began relaxing once more. 
They were on their way home, and soon this entire ordeal would be behind them. The atmosphere soured instantly when they realized what was actually behind them. A dark shape was trailing under the water's surface behind the ship, lazily matching their pace. Whatever it was, it was following them. Nobody knew what to do. Many of the sailors had at least seen whales before at a distance, but none had seen them follow a ship. So they did the only thing they could do. They kept moving. In addition to the increasingly stiff breeze propelling them forward, they manned the oars and attempted to put as much distance as they could between themselves and whatever that thing was. Our record of the events that transpired come from Tornall's journal. He wrote that sinuous arms rose from the water, each ending in a gaping ring of teeth like a lamprey's mouth. They clutched at the hull of the ship, seemed to have difficulty finding purchase on the wooden planks. A few of the sailors stabbed at the arms with spears and swords with little effect. The body of the creature surfaced only once, ponderously rising to just above the level of the water. A single yellow eye, taller than a man, gazed up at the ship before sinking below the surface once more. The wind had risen to a gale, dragging the ship past the monster's reach. The sail was hastily raised to its fullest extent, and the ship surged forward. The creature languidly followed after, but soon fell behind and disappeared fully beneath the water, this time for good. Tornall and his crew arrived safely at Scoresheide four days later. Their tale was met with equal parts awe and ridicule. Sea monsters twice the size of a longship, whales with tentacle-like arms clawing at the ship. It's easy to see how listeners would scoff in disbelief. At least, it would have been easy, if not for something discovered by a shipwright while repairing Tornall's battered vessel. Just below the waterline, out of sight from the surface, something was lodged in the overlapping wooden planks of the hull. A tooth the size of a man's forearm. Tornall's actions would seem irrational to many, risking his life in pursuit of an obviously fictional island. The cartographer was no fool, however. He had it on good authority that something as outlandish as a tropical paradise was out there. You see, Tornall had the honor of being the only person to speak with Captain Stigander during the captain's eight long years in Byer Ulf. Tornall never revealed what they had discussed, at least not directly. After he had safely made landfall, his crew pressured him to reveal the mysterious cargo he had brought. He finally showed them what was in the small barrel. It was beeswax, to be used as earplugs. If you enjoy the Wayfarer's Compendium, the best way to support the podcast is to share it with your friends. Thank you for listening.